Students at U.S. college campuses across the country are facing severe repression, but one would never know it from the U.S. Congress, which tries to promote the myth that the student activists supporting Palestinian freedom are in fact advocating a genocide for Jewish people. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Dr. Nazia Kazi. Dr. Kazi is a professor of anthropology. She's the author of the book, Islamophobia, Race, and Global Politics. Professor Kazi, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. We are witnessing a profound sea change in public opinion in the United States. Millions of people, literally millions of people, have been in the streets calling for a ceasefire in support of the people of Gaza, calling for an end to apartheid, an end to occupation. But U.S. congressional hearings have made it seem as if the big issue in the country was the attack launched by advocates of Palestinian freedom against Jewish students, the Jewish community, going so far as to promote the myth that these activists are promoting a genocide against Jewish people. Then there was the spectacle of university presidents doing so badly. I wanna to talk to you about why they did so badly in congressional hearings. And again, as we're speaking, Congress is preparing to pass a resolution condemning those university presidents, the same ones who have helped, their administrations have helped carry out a maligning of pro-Palestinian activists. They're gonna condemn them for their testimony at Congress. It is as if the world has been turned upside down, a real Alice in Wonderland presentation of what's going on in the country. You've written about the issues of Islamophobia. You've written about the issues of racism. You have an amazing book about it. I wanna just get your take here about what's going on. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting time. I think for a lot of professions, uh, obviously right now we see journalists of conscience really seeing their profession trampled on both with the systematic targeting of journalists in Gaza, the highest rate in modern history, um, and the complicity of Western media. We see the medical profession going through this with the healthcare crisis, of course, in Gaza, but also the accusations of Doctors Without Borders being some kind of front for Hamas. But I think it's most concentrated in academia, both in higher ed and even in K through 12 settings, where we're seeing professors, scholars, even K through 12 teachers really having a come to Palestinian Jesus moment, if you will. Um, you know, we have on paper this principle of academic freedom, which guarantees three things, uh, the freedom of inquiry and research, the freedom of teaching what we want within the university setting, and the freedom of extramural utterance and action. 
And I certainly enjoy all these things when I teach, for instance, about the CIA's regime change operations around the world. In my classrooms, I can have a healthy exchange when a student disagrees. I can bring all kinds of resources to the classroom. The same is true when I teach about policing and mass incarceration, also a very controversial hot button issue. I can assign the end of policing. I can assign Angela Davis's Are Prisons Obsolete? I can assign Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And I've never been afraid of being silenced. I can be disagreed with, for sure. And this is in a campus that is deeply carceral. We have a huge criminal justice program. We have a huge police presence on campus. But I am free in this regard. The exception really comes down to this question of teaching, researching, and organizing around Palestine. And it was, you know, um, the late Michael Ratner who spoke about the free speech exception that exists on this subject. And you can you know, read more about this in Mark Lamont Hill's book, Except for Palestine, or Professor Stephen Saleda's Uncivil Rights, which is that there really is a very obvious exception to the principles of academic freedom when it comes to the question of Palestine, which I know we're going to be getting into in our conversation today. So I think what we've seen, um, not just last week with the hearings, but really the past couple months is this free speech exception in practice, in perhaps one of the most atrocious um, you know, moments we've lived through. Um, and you see echoes of what we've seen in the past, right? I mean, it was in 2018 that Professor Mark Lamont Hill was fired from his CNN position for a speech he gave at the United Nations regarding the question of human rights for Palestinians. It was in 2014 uh, that Professor Stephen Saleda was fired from a tenured position because of a tweet he made in opposition to the 2014 assault on Gaza. Professor Norm Finkelstein's denial of tenure at DePaul University, which came at the board of trustees level, which for those of us who are in academia, we understand how unusual that is. When you go up for tenure, you know, there are all these levels of of review and approval. And by the time it reaches the board of trustees, that's basically a rubber stamp. It's very unusual that they would disagree with the, the levels that came before it. We've seen uh, Cornell West's experience at Harvard University. Uh, When I was uh, working on a graduate degree at Columbia University, the Columbia unbecoming controversy unfolded regarding Professor Joseph Massad and a few other Arab professors who basically got in trouble for making comparisons between Israeli and South African apartheid, a thing that even former President Jimmy Carter has said. We've seen in 2012 a litigating Palestine conference at the University of California canceled. We've seen Professor Rabab Abdelhadi investigated under terrorism charges because of a research trip she was planning to take to occupied Palestine. So there's a long history of this. For those of us who have been paying attention, we're not terribly surprised, even though we're horrified at the climate we see unfolding. At the University of Pennsylvania, there was an Instagram post that got 16,000 likes on the day, I think it was October 16th, the day after students had protested against President Liz McGill's statement, which was so one-sided and so uh, sort of dismissive of what was happening to the Palestinian people at the time that there was this horrific bombing going on in Gaza a very one-sided position on her part in support of Israel. So the students went out and they protested and they chanted things like, Israel, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide. People are chanting that. They're also chanting, 
Joe Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. We had a demonstration in Washington, D.C. of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, the biggest demonstration in support of Palestine ever in the U.S. And people were chanting, Joe Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. People are saying genocide Joe because he's embracing uh, the destruction of Gaza, the destruction of apartment buildings, of hospitals. If you have about 20,000 people killed in Gaza, that's 1% of the population. And if there was a 1% murder rate in the United States, a killing rate of the U.S. population, if it was the same ratio, that would be 3.3 million Americans killed in eight weeks. People would say, yeah, that's a genocide. But then the, the Instagram post said the students were chanting, we want a Jewish genocide. So they twisted the chant from Israel, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide to the idea that these students were advocating a genocide against Jews. Completely false. And yet it got enormous attraction online and it helped contribute as all of this sort of information war, disinformation war that's being launched by Israeli supporters is having an impact. And that sort of set the stage, at least partly, for the congressional hearings. I, I mean, this kind of disinformation, even if later people say, oh, no, that's not what they were chanting, in a way it doesn't matter because that became the portrayed image of the demonstrators. In a strange way, it mirrors really what is actually happening on, on the ground in occupied Palestine. Um, you know, I, I gave a talk recently where afterward I was basically lambasted because I mentioned that a bunch of journalists, as well as the White House, had to retract their statements about beheaded babies. And it, it didn't matter that the statement had been sort of retracted by the Israeli military itself. Once you put these facts out there, uh, they kind of take on a life of their own. So whether it is the chant used by students at Penn being misconstrued or the events on the ground in occupied Palestine, we see echoes of the same process. But when it comes to University of Pennsylvania, you know, I think it's important that we understand what kind of institution this is. Penn is a ruling class institution. Penn has produced figures ranging from Donald Trump to Elon Musk to the CEO of American Airlines and the CEO of Cisco to the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Penn has produced a who's who in right-wing politics in America, in venture capital, in technology, in finance, and in the defense industry. Penn is a ruling class institution, not just designed to serve the interests of the ruling class, but to produce further wealth for the ruling class, right? So when we talk about Penn, those of us who live in Philly remember quite well during the uprisings, uprising, the Arabic word for which is intifada, of 2020, that it was Penn police who unleashed a tear gas assault on protesters on 52nd Street. Um, students at Penn have been quick to point out that the tear gas that is manufactured and used against demonstrators in the United States is the same as that which is used on uh, Palestinians in occupied territories. A student organization called Police Free Pen has emerged in response to this atrocious attack during 2020 that has largely morphed into an organization that is doing, you know, this kind of organizing and activism now in the face of the, the genocide in Palestine. Um, Penn is a major evictor of working class people. Uh, there's a, a famous struggle around the UC townhomes in West Philly. Penn is a notorious tax evader. They don't pay taxes in a city that faces all kinds of 
budgetary crises. And, and I think this context is actually really important for us to understand this issue around the repression of pro-Palestine voices and anti-apartheid voices on campuses. Yeah, I'm just looking. It was Ross Stevens who demanded the resignation of President Liz McGill after her testimony in Congress, but also just generally because, you know, pro-Palestinian demonstrators are at the UPenn campus, just like they're in all campuses almost everywhere around the country. So he, he said he was withdrawing and did withdraw a donation of $100 million unless the university fired her. She resigned. And then he's apparently making some noises that he might reconsider depending on his discussions with the board at UPenn. Anyway, again, academic freedom. Well, things apparently have a price, Professor. I mean, $100 million is a lot of money, but it says a lot, too, about how decisions get made. Yeah. You know, I've spoken and written for a while now about two features of higher ed that are really remarkable. One is that these are deeply carceral spaces. They are spaces with heavy police presence and sometimes even the presence of American intelligence agencies. And we see that right now. When pro-Israel posters were torn down or defaced at American University in Washington, D.C., the response by the university was to call the FBI. I doubt this would be true if any other posters were torn down. And at a Northwestern University, there was a version of the Daily Northwestern, the the campus newspaper, a spoof version of it that was reprinted. And this was after the doctors had held their press conferences surrounded by literal corpses, uh, just a mountain of corpses. I mean, this image is seared into my memory. And the Daily Northwestern was spoofed by students who issued this fake paper calling out the university's complicity with Israeli occupation and apartheid, and the police were called. Um, Queens College, where I was once an adjunct professor, has called the NYPD on its pro-Palestine students. So we have a deeply carceral university, but of course some of these students remember, and maybe they're seniors now and they were younger entering students uh, in 2020 when decarcerate movements swept college campuses during the George Floyd uprising. And now they're seeing firsthand what it means to not only have a strong campus police force that is just ready to go with these tools of repression, but also partnerships with local police department. I'm sure most of your viewers have seen just the row of Brown University students um, in kafias being taken out in handcuffs and arrested. So we have that carceral university. But we also have a deeply militarized university. The university is a reflection of the military-industrial complex itself. They are awash in State Department dollars. They are awash in Pentagon dollars, in CIA dollars. I remember when I was uh, working on my PhD at the City University of New York, we had to stage massive protests because David Petraeus was given a visiting professorship at CUNY, you know, and he was given some $200,000 for like two lectures or something at a time when we adjuncts had to push our, you know, we had to use our union strength to push for, you know, basic pay increases. I'm sure many of your viewers have seen, and if you haven't seen, it's kind of satisfying, the heckling of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, about a couple weeks ago when she uh, was giving a lecture at Columbia University. And she was booed by students staging a sit-in. She was heckled by students staging a sit-in at Columbia University's SEPA. These students throw money at heads of state, Pentagon officials, etc., who, you know, hold 
really treasured appointments that reveal um, these connections between the military industrial complex, uh, the intelligence apparatus and higher education. All right. I want to turn now to the congressional hearings from last week. Again, right-wing Republicans took the lead, although there were plenty of Democrats in on it. The supporters of Donald Trump's you know, fraudulent effort to overturn the 2020 election. They were marching hand in hand with the Democratic Party in pursuing this basically a witch hunt. The college presidents did badly. I want to talk about why they did badly when they were asked about whether condemning or advocating genocide against Jews was a violation of university policy. They seem to have a hard time answering the question. I want to talk about why they, there's a political reason why they fumbled so badly. Not only the, the fact that they got terrible advice from Robert Mueller's law firm who prepped them, uh, Wilmer Hale, uh, but we want to talk about the politics of that. But before I do, I want to just, for our audience, identify what's actually happening. Here, Congress is saying Jewish people are feeling scared, they're feeling nervous, they're feeling under attack. Meanwhile, 2,000 people have been arrested in protests more than 2,000 since October 7th, all over the United States in protest advocating for the end of the siege of Gaza. On October 10th, the law firm rescinded its job offer to a New York University law student. What did that student do? They wrote a message at the University Student Bar Association saying that Israel bore responsibility for the attack, meaning October 7th wasn't the beginning of this movie, that it was the occupation and the dispossession of Palestinian people's lands. On October 24th, the chancellor of the State University System of Florida writes a letter to school presidents that chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine must be deactivated. November 8th, the police arrested 20 students at Brown University, as you just mentioned. November 10th, Columbia University suspends two pro-Palestinian student groups Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace. Jewish Voices for Peace also suspended. 40 University of Michigan students arrested at a protest on November 17th. On November 25th, Thanksgiving week, and those three young men, Palestinians, shot in Vermont. One of them left paralyzed for life because they had kafiyas on. This litany could go on and on. This week at Harvard University, African-American students who have been standing with the people of Palestine are being brought into disciplinary hearings by the same Harvard administration that was testifying, their president, Claudine Gay, was testifying last week in Congress. Now, she's an African, first African-American president at Harvard. The black faculty is standing with her. They're refusing and have said now that they will not require her to resign or be fired, as happened to Liz McGill, the president of the University of Pennsylvania. But I just want to make it clear to people, uh, the right wing is attacking Claudine Gay and the Harvard administration, but the Harvard administration has been attacking student activists, including African-American student activists who dared stand with Palestine. Let's, I want to go now to the beginning of the congressional testimony. This is Claudine Gay, again, appearing in her opening statement. I'm going to play that. I want to get your comments. And then I want to get to the two answers from Claudine Gay and Liz McGill, where they 
seemingly are unable to directly answer the question about whether the advocacy of genocide of Jewish people violates campus policy. But let's start with her opening comments. It's an honor to be here today representing a community of more than 25,000 undergraduate and graduate students, more than 19,000 faculty and staff, and more than 400,000 alumni, including multiple members of this committee. Thank you for calling this hearing on the critical topic of anti-Semitism. Our community still mourns those brutally murdered during the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel on October 7th. Words fail in the face of such depravity. The deadliest single day for the Jewish community since the horrors of the Holocaust. In the two months since the atrocities of October 7th and the subsequent armed conflict and humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen a dramatic and deeply concerning rise in anti-Semitism around the world, in the United States, and on our campuses, including my own. All right, later in that opening statement, she does have one sentence where she says there's also apprehension about Islamophobia, uh, but I would say 90% of her statement is along the lines of what we just heard, that there's the rising tide of anti-Semitism all around the country, including at her university, Again, that university, Harvard, is going after student activists, including African-American student activists, who have been the leaders of, or part of the leadership of the movement in support of Palestine. So in her opening statement, she's kind of all about the hearing. She's like, yeah, this is great. What you guys are doing, terrific. And I just want to get your comment before we go to the other clips. She says this was the worst, biggest sort of assault or or slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, as if what happened on October 7th had some proximate similarity to the Nazi fascist Holocaust of millions of Jews in Europe, as if the Palestinians who have been locked up in Gaza and who are involved in peaceful protests that were you know, met with sniper fire in 2018 and now engaged in armed resistance on October 7th, that the reason they're doing it is because they, like the Nazis, hate Jews, as opposed to the fact that their land has been taken, they've been dispossessed by citizens of the state of Israel, backed by the Israeli Defense Forces. This is so disingenuous, and actually, I would say, not only a fraud, but trivializes and commits really a terrible historical injustice against the victims of the real Holocaust in Europe perpetrated by the Nazis, because that was different. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I actually have a colleague, a Holocaust studies professor who is Israeli, Roz Siegel, who has written about this very issue, about how the, leg the, the legacy of the Holocaust is manipulated in this moment, right, to um, generate pro-Israel sentiment. But here's the thing. The generation of college students right now, they don't really watch CNN. They don't watch MSNBC. They don't watch the New York Times. Now, universities will often offer students a subscription to the New York Times. It's part of their you know, tuition package or whatever. And I, I think it's really interesting because students are watching Twitter. They're watching TikTok. They're watching Instagram. And when they look at these sources, they are seeing you know, Israeli heads of state 
who the U.S. has backed and given full-throated support to, calling Palestinians human animals. They are seeing American heads of state calling for banning Palestinian migration to the United States. They are seeing Israeli heads of state saying we need a second Nakba. They are seeing a whole culture of Israeli occupation forces, Israeli soldiers going on TikTok and making these like viral videos of themselves in brown face, dancing around with fake dead babies, mocking the power outages, mocking the lack of food in Gaza. And at the same time, they're seeing real time images of Palestinian folks digging through rubble to pull their loved ones out, sometimes alive and deeply injured, sometimes quite often dead children, babies. They have seen the assault on hospitals. And then they have seen the flimsy excuses given for the assault on these hospitals just sort of vanish a week later, where no one wants to talk about, for instance, al-Shifa anymore. So for students seeing this, this is kind of a, these hearings that happened are kind of an embodiment of what Marx said about ideology, that it operates as a camera obscura right? That it takes reality and it flips the image entirely on its head. So this questioning of university presidents about what they called, you know, the dehumanization of Jewish people is happening at a time when at all levels, from culture right on up to elected officials um, in the U.S., in Israel, are engaging in a wholesale dehumanization of Palestinian people, right? So I think for students who have witnessed this, it's been a real learning moment. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, uh, where I am in New York, there was a volunteers meeting for Shut It Down for Palestine. These are, you know, weekly actions that are saying no business as usual as long as there's a genocide going on, demanding a ceasefire, demanding an end to occupation. 400 people came on Monday night. And that's not unusual now. Like, there is so much energy it really, you know, I there are moments that have happened like this before in U.S. history, and I have been lucky enough to be part of them. I'm, I mean, as a very, very young teenager, I was part of the anti-war movement in Vietnam. What we're witnessing now on Gaza, what people are witnessing, where you see, you know, people being massacred every day. We watch that every day when the U.S. government was doing it to the Vietnamese people. And as a consequence, young people changed. I mean, millions of young Americans were like, at first they thought the war was a terrible mistake. And then they thought, well, no, it's not a mistake because it just keeps going and going. If it was a mistake, it would have ended. So it's not a mistake, it's the system. And what is the system? The system has a name and the name is capitalism and imperialism. And people started becoming radical and they went from being liberals to being socialists and even being revolutionaries. You know, we're in a moment, it's not exactly like that, but it's kind of like that, where the energy of young people has become so dominant in this effort of disinformation and fraud and punishment and repression, it's not going to work. There's going to be an additional toll. But, you know, when you, when you shut people down, at first they get scared. At first they have a tendency to run and to hide. But then they get rid of their fear. And when people get rid of their fear, that's when change happens. That's really when change happens. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm so glad you connect this to the question of economics. You know, I know you have Professor Wolf on the show, I think, weekly. And we cannot understand what is happening in higher ed without uh, understanding what has happened to higher ed because of the capitalist system. 
right? I mean, we have seen over several decades the absolute gutting of public funding for higher education, and not just higher education, K through 12 education. Um, so a socialist analysis really matters here. You know, students will be like, but, but why? Why are university presidents and chancellors and board of trustees so beholden to private donors? Why is there intelligence dollars or Pentagon funding in our universities? And this is a teachable moment as well, right? I mean, the Department of Education has basically turned its back on Americans wanting to pursue higher ed. I'm sure many of your viewers have become familiar with the work, for instance, of the Debt Collective, which does a really great job of showing us the connections between student debt and American military policy. We have heard American military leaders saying that any kind of debt cancellation would hurt recruitment numbers for the American military. I mean, the fact that they can say that out loud and there aren't mass riots in the street is really remarkable. And so I think American students are learning this firsthand, that the gutting of higher ed under a capitalist system leads directly to this kind of repression, right? That this is a direct product of the sort of neoliberal university that we see, whether it's a private university or even a public university. And I think for our students, um, you know, they are seeing something right now in real time that is giving them quite an education for Muslim students and not just Muslim students and Arab students, but for the students we might call to quote Edward Said, the Islamic hit. All those students who are sort of read as Muslim, and that can be Sikh, that can be Arab Christian, that can be South Asians. They are getting an education in what racism looks like. Obviously, the, the gross dehumanization of brown bodies. They are getting an education in the limits of academic freedom as their student groups are policed and shut down. They are getting a lesson in the sort of academic apathy which they see. The number of young folks, college students, who are like, well, why don't the political science professors or the international relations professors care, let alone being on the wrong side, right? There's also the deep apathy. And we see that whole disciplines have sort of been defanged of any kind of political consciousness. I saw a tweet the other day from Ian Bremer, a political scientist at Columbia. He posted a picture of an Israeli flag planted right there in the middle of Gaza in a bulldozed fully raised to the ground segment of what was formerly one of the most densely populated places in the world. And he says, well, I wonder what Israel means to do with this picture. And I'm like, do you wonder? Because you are one of the most renowned, well-funded political scientists. And people have been saying for a while that this is a land grab, that this is a colonial occupation. You see that, so that flag planted in the soil. Are you playing dumb or are you? And, and you know, I've, I've had this feeling many times when I've been invited to be on panels with academics who are far more well-regarded than I am, and they have much bigger grants, and they have much cushier jobs than I do. And if I happen to mention a phrase like American imperialism, you know, they'll, they'll roll up their sleeves and hem and haw over whether it's actually accurate to speak of an American empire. You know, that's, that's what passes for, for, for scholarship in America. The Islamicate students are also getting an education in how interfaith dialogue or things like understanding and cultural understanding serve as distractions from the actual issues at hand. The number of Arab, Palestinian, or Muslim students who have been invited to sit down with the other side, told that all of our problems are the same, if we just dialogue a little bit, we can get past it, is really remarkable. Meanwhile, anti 
Zionist Jewish students are getting a remarkable lesson, too, in the workings of anti-Semitism. Last month, they saw the right-wing anti-Semite John Hagee speak at the pro-Israel march um, in Washington, D.C. Jewish students are seeing the statistics used by the ADL, which, the, which they reject, you know, which anti-Zionist Jewish students reject, used and circulated by the mainstream media without question. They are seeing right-wing figures like Elise Stefanik interrogating these college presidents on the topic of anti-Semitism in spite of her being pro-Trump, right? In spite of her um, vocally supporting many overtly anti-Semitic voices in this country. And anti-Zionist Jewish students are getting an education in how there is this sinister move to place anti-Semitism on the left, right? Stripping it of its distinctly right-wing roots. Yeah, no, indeed. I'm so glad you, you went over that because... That's where political education really does come from. It, you know, you can only learn so much from books. I'm very much a book reader and I promote books and study books and teach about books. But it's in real life, in the struggle in real life, where people have to take a stand and then they sort of encounter that which this, the society tells them doesn't exist, which is the idea that you will be repressed because of what you think you will be repressed for because of what you say. That the limitations of the First Amendment, which are, we're, we're told in school makes America exceptional and so democratic, that the limit is so obvious. And then you have to make a decision as a person. And if you're part of a collective, you have to make a decision. Do I stop? Do I go back? Do I sort of look at fear? or the fear imposed on me and, and, and back away from it, or do I go forward? And as you go forward, you learn. And this is actually so important. And you know, I think also dramatic, I've thought about this a lot because I've been, as the director of the Answer Coalition, we've been organizing activities for Palestine since we were formed three days after September 11th. And you know, the Israelis kept saying, this is our September 11th. And you know, I was thinking, okay, well, that just was used as a pretext to go to endless war against other people who had nothing to do with September 11th. But at that time, you know, we were we made a big breakthrough in April 2002 when when the when the Israelis reinvaded the West Bank, and we organized a demonstration that was almost 100,000 people in support of Palestine, and it blew people's minds because up until then, even people in the liberal left and even some of the radical left said, you can't deal with Palestine, the taboo is so great, the demonization, the caricaturing, the idea that Palestinians, when they fight, unlike South Africans or Salvadorans or somebody else, when they fight, it's not for freedom, it's just because they're terrorists. And so this taboo was so dominant, and yet now, once it's broken, it's, not go it's never going back. It's never going back. This, we have gone, this is a historical marker. What's happened right now is a historical marker. And so many young Jewish people are not just participating, they're taking the lead in many places. Jewish Voices for Peace, if not now, they're taking their own initiatives, blocking the Manhattan Bridge, confronting the Democratic National Party at its headquarters in Washington, doing lots of actions. The whole notion that if you're for Palestinian freedom, that means you're anti-Semitic, it's being blown away on many fronts, including 
the very active and I would say increasingly militant intervention of young Jewish Americans who don't want to be identified with apartheid. So this is like one of those moments. Okay, with all that said, I want to go to the congressional testimony. The two presidents from University of Pennsylvania will hear her first, Liz McGill, and then the president, Claudine Gay, later. They're asked by Elise Stefanik, who, by the way, is not only a 2020 election denier, but possibly a Trump's running mate in uh, 2024. She's being talked about in that way. She's on the attack, and you would think this would be an easy answer for them, but they fumble, and I want to get your take on why they fumble, because if they were sitting around a kitchen table or if they were in a classroom, they wouldn't have said what they said. So I want to talk about what they actually said. We're going to listen to it and then why they said it, because there is a political reason, and it's not because they're, quote, soft on anti-Semitism. There's a different reason. First, let's start with Liz McGill, now resigned president of the University of Pennsylvania. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. Uh, It is an easy answer, you would think, Professor. Why did she fumble? Why did she have this kind of, I mean, Wilmer Hale, Robert Mueller's law firm, White Shoe Law Firm, they charged $1,500 an hour to prep all the presidents. She acted like she was in a deposition, parsing words. Why didn't she just say, yes, advocating genocide of Jews violates university policy? Right. I mean, or simply to ask a response question. I mean, all these universities have on their websites, you know, that critical thinking is a skill that they promote. It's one of their strategic values. And this posing of yes or no questions is, of course, a trap. There was an opportunity for her to respond, I'm not aware of that having happened, that the genocide of Jews has not been called for by student protests. But there is this conflation of a whole range of strategies being deemed, you know, calls to genocide. So, of course, I'm sure your viewers are all familiar with how the River to the Sea chant, which, of course, critics of that chant will often stop with from the River to the Sea and not finish the chant, which is Palestine will be free, that it's a call for an end of apartheid. Um, that the kafia has been deemed a hate symbol. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, that the word intifada is also being portrayed as a genocidal word, and it's simply an Arabic word for uprising. So, you know, Arabic language scholars have talked about the Warsaw Ghetto Intifada. That is the word for uprising. So, you know, um, this posing of a yes or no question then presupposes that what the question is asking is, you know, somehow intellectually valid. Now, of course, the professor of Penn was in some hot water just a few months before October 7th, a month before, I believe, with the Palestine Rights Festival at Penn. Administrators at the University of Pennsylvania were pressured to distance themselves 
from this festival and the language of anti-Semitism was used. Palestine Legal had to get involved. And a lot of critics were saying, you know, that critics of the Palestine Rights Festival were saying that Penn's collaboration with this event was singling out, you know, a singling out of Israel. And that is a kind of anti-Semitism. Um, and this is a common talking point you'll come across is, you know, why, why does BDS single out Israel? And of course, this again presupposes a lot. It's actually the U.S. that has singled out Israel, whether it's for $14 billion in emergency funding or $4 billion in annual funding to the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, whether it's unchecked weapons transfers. And I'm sure if you've read the news recently, you see that the Biden administration has greenlit the unchecked transfer of lethal weapons, bypassing congressional approval. It is a media that has singled out Israel for coddled language, the use of that sort of passive voice to justify some of the most atrocious and just in broad daylight um, acts of violence against civilian populations. So it is against this backdrop that she accepted a question that was posed not in good faith. She could have said, yes, you know, we condemn and it would... Anybody advocating genocide of Jews would be obviously violating university policy. But in fact, it's not happening. I mean, it seemed to me that's the simplest answer. But then the next question would have been, well, what about those young people, those students who are chanting from the river to the sea? Palestine must be free. Or maybe Elise Stefanik still believes in the Instagram post where students who are chanting, Israel, Israel, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide, as having actually said, we advocate for a Jewish genocide. In other words, completely fraudulently twisting the words. Maybe Elise Stefanik and the right wing, who actually were the promoters of this BS, this fraudulent claim. But the president, I thought, both Liz McGill and Claudine Gay don't want to deal with the question of from the river to the sea and basically assert it's not inherently at all an anti-Semitic or an advocacy for genocide against Jews because then they'd also be cornered by the right wing as being sort of liberal or tolerant towards a Palestinian protest. When the real goal of the hearing is to shut down the protest smear the protesters as being anti-Semites and advocates of genocide. And so this it's this normal liberal failure in the face of right-wing attacks to actually stand up on the basis of principle and fact in this case. None of the students at the University of Pennsylvania, none that I'm aware of, and certainly not in the protests, ever advocated for the genocide against Jewish people. So the premise of the question, as you're saying, is false. And the president could have said, yes, this is false. What you're suggesting is false. It's a false innuendo. But they don't want to really take on the right, especially on this issue. Uh, they want to sort of pretend that they can be friends of the right, but parsing words won't help them. It just makes them look like idiots. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was probably mid-October when these huge protests swept all cities around the world, including in Western Europe. And uh, in Berlin, there were these record protests for Palestine. And when they were chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, the German government tried to ban that phrase from being used at protests. And the protesters kind of uh, conceded to that demand and changed the chant to, from the river to the sea, we demand equality. 
and Germany banned that phrase too. I mean, this reveals something, whether it's Germany or Britain or the United States, is that there are these two tools, right? There's the the, the propaganda tool to paint everything as whether it's anti-Semitic or, you know, racist in some way. And when those tools fail, then you just have to bust out the repression. So you have the propaganda arm and then you have the repressive arm. And when it when you fail to paint everything, every form of protest as anti-Semitic, that's when you bring out the handcuffs. That's when you start suspending student groups. That's when you start terminating the contracts of adjunct or, or visiting professors. That's when you start calling in your tenured professors for disciplinary hearing. So the tools of propaganda and repression sort of work hand in hand, you know, this sort of this fulcrum that they both uh, flip on. And the same can be true of these allegations of anti-Semitism and then terrorist sympathies. So as I said earlier, you know, it was Rabab Abdel Hadi was accused of terrorist sympathizing. Um, and when one of those fails, then you inevitably sort of flip over to the other. You know, the, the Congresswoman was also an advocate at, at different times for all sorts of things that are very popular in the Trump camp, including the replacement theory. Now, I want to talk about this because there is a thing called the white genocide conspiracy theory. I'm, you've probably written about it and spoken about it, but it's really gotten a lot of traction in the right wing. In, in uh, Charlottesville in 2018, when the fascists had their Unite the Right rally, they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. They were obviously also against the black community. I mean, it was an attempt by fascism to sort of gain greater strength, as fascism did gain greater strength during the first years of the Trump administration. But this idea that if you have black civil rights, if you have equality for black people or other non-white or people of color, this is a thing that exists, that this is actually constitutes a white extinction conspiracy, and people believe it. It's, I think it's similar to what's being promoted, that if you advocate for Palestinian rights, that means you're for genocide against Jews. It's kind of the same thing, and with the same racist overtones. I mean, I think this is a moment where we are seeing just how lacking there is in liberal America, right? In liberal America, there is a, a deep lack of analysis of imperialism a lack of analysis of colonialism, uh, certainly of capitalism or neoliberalism. So when liberal America lacks an analysis of these tools, what we see is what we're seeing right now, an eager alliance with the right in these moments, right? An eager alliance with the kind of anti-Semites who took the stage at the pro-Israel rally in D.C. in November, an alliance with war hawks, an alliance with people who do support apartheid and ethnic cleansing. So for Elise Stefanik, a Trump supporter, this means that, you know, he has dined with Holocaust deniers. He has defended, as you said, the neo-Nazi protesters in Charlottesville who were chanting those horribly anti-Semitic slogans, who were peddling in these theories of the great replacement of white people by immigrants and, and brown people and this huge influx of us to the global north. Yeah. And uh, the congresswoman was also a supporter of Carl Palladino, New York State businessman, politician, who said, Hitler is the kind of leader we need. So somehow her, you know, tender feelings about the need to fight anti-Semitism don't extend fully to the political right wingers that she supports, like Carl Palladino. I want to go back to the congressional hearing because 
Liz McGill said almost the same thing that Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, said. And again, Harvard board and the faculty are standing with her. She's not going to be forced to resign or fired, which, you know, if she had been fired, it would have been just succumbing to right-wing pressure. So I think in that sense, that's good, although I think Harvard should stop their attacks against pro-Palestinian students at the same time. But let's listen to Claudine Gay's testimony again before this right-wing congresswoman. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say, from the river to the sea or intifada, advocating for the murder of Jews? That type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. What action will be taken? When speech crosses into conduct. All right, so what do you think? I mean, it's a very similar kind of response as the Penn president gave, which is accepting the premise of the question. Again, you know, the word intifada means uprising. There's a long history of use of this phrase from the river to the sea, whether it ends with we demand equality or Palestine will be free. I'd urge folks to read uh, Maha Nassar's sort of groundbreaking article on the history and use of the phrase itself. But she sort of accepts the premise that these terms are genocidal against Jewish people, a a false premise and a really dangerous concession to make um, in this context. Right now in the West Bank, which the Israelis seized in 1967, at the same time they seized Gaza. This this was a military aggression in June 1967. The Israeli Defense Forces, backed by the United States, seized the West Bank. They took it over. They occupied it. They've put 700,000 settlers into the West Bank, taking Palestinians' homes, blowing up Palestinian homes if they dare resist, taking Palestinians illegally into Israeli prisons. When Palestinians capture any Israeli, even a soldier or whatever, they're called hostages, But the Israelis have thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including so many children. They seize Gaza. There's no airport in Gaza. There's no seaport in Gaza. The Israelis completely control that area totally. And at this moment, as we're speaking in Jenin and all over the West Bank in this illegally seized part of Palestine, of historic Palestine, the Israeli defense forces and settlers are carrying out a reign of terror against Palestinian people. Again, This is completely absent, not only from the U.S. Congress, but it's absent from the U.S. mainstream media. And I just want to remind our audience that until 1988, the U.S. said that Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress were terrorists. When they picked up the gun, when they carried out armed struggle, when civil disobedience wasn't doing the trick, when they fought against the racist apartheid settler regime, They were deemed to be terrorists. They were in prison. The CIA helped them imprison Nelson Mandela. Same language. And now today, Professor, 30 years later, after the end of apartheid, people say, well, the U.S. is really on the side of freedom. We wanted Nelson Mandela to be free. We love the fact that there's majority rule in South Africa. I mean, in many, many ways, the comparison between South Africa and Israel are similar or almost the same 
Some people, including Nelson Mandela and including Jimmy Carter, they say some of the parallels when drawn show that the apartheid in historic Palestine is even worse, which is in some ways hard to believe for me, but that's what they're saying and what they have said in the past. If you call for an end to apartheid in South Africa, does that mean that you were calling for genocide against white people? Well, the ANC never said that. They said they wanted a multiracial society. Would a lot of people in African people hated the people who destroyed their lives? Well, yeah, they probably would have. But the organized leadership of those movements, uh, the movement in the case of the ANC called for a multiracial society. The idea that this advocacy for Palestinian freedom and an end to apartheid is sort of the same as a genocide against Jews, again, I think this is a kind of fraud that will basically be rejected by most people. I think the days of this preeminent position where anybody who attacks Israel is somehow threatening Jewish people everywhere, conflating Jewish people with the state of Israel, which carries out war crimes, I think that's going to end. And the sooner it ends, the better. Uh, with that said, Professor, I want to give you the last word. I want to also recommend people to get your book, to get your writings, and I want to ask you, as, after your final comments, how can people get the material that you've been producing and writing about? Thanks so much. Yeah, you know, let's not forget, it was the CIA who turned over the location of Nelson Mandela, which allowed the South African authorities to arrest him and imprison him for nearly three decades. The U.S. was always on the side of apartheid South Africa as it is now on the side of apartheid Israel. But there is a difference here, and our conversation today has been about higher ed. Uh, Nick Reimer has a book called Boycott Theory, where he points to how, in the case of South African apartheid, universities often did divest from systems of South African apartheid. And at that time, no one really raised this question that is being raised now about academic freedom. So in academic settings, when you speak about the academic boycott of Israel, the cultural and academic boycott of Israel, you're accused of attacking academic freedom. And so in this instance, we see that universities are not taking the position that they often took during South African apartheid, right? But, you know, you're pointing to sort of a, a hopeful end to our conversation today, which is both that students are sort of enthusiastically and fearlessly rejecting the discourse. And these are students who have seen doxing trucks drive around their campus, broadcasting their names, trying to get them in trouble. Students have had their job offers rescinded. Students who have had, you know, hateful jeers and taunts from their own professors. But we've also seen that faculty are bolder about speaking out. And when I say faculty, I mean even contingent faculty, even people who are maybe on a one or two year contract as a visiting scholar, um, maybe even adjunct professors. And I've known plenty who have been vocal and then have been sort of shut out of their email access or had their class canceled mid-semester. Um, so we are living in a really remarkable and in some ways inspiring time. I am so stunned when I look at all the people from my PhD program who are all over the place, many of them in academia, some of them have left academia, and they're all raising their voice. They are all being extremely vocal about what is happening right now. And I really hope that, you know, folks in, in occupied Palestine can someday, you know, feel the outcome of this boldness and bravery on the part of people in America 
willing to stand on the right side of history. Thank you so much for raising my book, which is really an introductory book on the topic of Islamophobia and the war on terror. Please get your local library to get it. That's what you should do. And you should also get your local library to acquire a bunch of books by Palestinian authors and tell your publishing companies that you love XYZ title about Israeli apartheid, that you love XYZ title about, um, you know, by a Palestinian author. And, you know, this can sort of be understood as sort of the flip side of a, of a BDS type of strategy. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Nazia Kazi, professor of anthropology, author of the book, Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics. Dr. Kazi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.